Well, Happy New Year, Crossroads. Are we ready for this or not? Come on now, that's what I'm talking about. We have the mikvah bowls up here. We're going to be having them up here for the whole month of January. Um, is there rhyme or reason to that? Yeah, um, it, it, it was just a gut in light of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, mikvah, from our end of things, our part in this whole equation of being a Christ follower, us in relationship with God, God in relationship with us, is the single most important thing we can do. Because mikvah is simply a symbol of that important thing, which is repentance. And I know I've said this a lot in the last couple of years because I've had an epiphany in my own life in regards to repentance. I always looked at repentance as something that would bring me back to a God that I let down and disappointed, not realizing that repentance is the way that we experience the love of a good, good father. Uh, it, it's simply turning from ourselves, turning from things in our life that we know we need to turn from, thoughts, actions, um, idols, illicit loves, um, and simply turning back to a God that when he sees us, Jesus says he runs to us, puts his arms around us. And so at any time, when I'm teaching, preaching, any time in the gathering, uh, next month, if that is something that you want to do, please just uh, make your way up front. And why do we have it up front? Why do we um, have these bowls? Um, because in the Bible, repentance is a public thing. People turn to Christ in a public way. In a public way, they fell at his feet. And uh, mikvah is simply coming. This water represents his blood and it's washing our hands, our heart, our head, our mouth, our eyes, our feet, whatever it is that we, and then it's recommitting our head, our heart, and our feet to him. So, okay. Also, I think it's a good time to uh, reflect on our theme verse for this year. Anybody remember it? I'm glad Jeremiah remembered last year's. Anybody know this year's? It's all right. You're going to learn it. You'll get this. You're capable of it. I'm not looking at a bunch of spectators. I'm looking at a bunch of people that are on the football field and want to play the game. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. Let's look at it. I think I have it on PowerPoint. If anyone is, claims to be in Christ, it's probably not that one. <laughs> I'll say it for you. If anyone claims to be in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. It's a pretty bold statement. Walk is discipleship language. A disciple is simply someone who learns to walk like Jesus. And this is why we spent much of the year studying the Sermon on the Mount, um, which I hope we never put the Sermon on the Sermon on the Mount in, in our rearview mirror, it always needs to be before us because nothing, in my opinion, spells out how Jesus walked or how we are to walk like him more than the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the Sermon on the Mount, as we learned, it, it's, it's not a new path. It's, it's not a new way to walk. It's the ancient path. And, and the ancient path is this book. It's God's word. Because God's people believe that when the Messiah would come, he wouldn't create a new religion, but that when he, co- when he came, he would properly explain to us the book and show us how to walk the book out. And sadly, too much of Christianity today goes around the book. In fact, when I, I teach in contexts outside of crossroads or just interact with uh, the people in my world, whether they're churched or unchurched, um, I'm just still quite a bit shocked at how people don't know the book anymore. They don't know it. And I don't know why this is. I don't know if it's just because the book is intimidating, people think that they can't read it and understand it for themselves, or if it's just pure laziness, or if we believe that the Holy Spirit, since he's come, he's kind of made the book obsolete, but that is, is crazy thought because the, the Spirit inspired the book. The Spirit wrote the book. The Spirit <laughs> works through the book to change us. And I know I'm stating the obvious when I say this, but I still want to say it anyway. We right now are living in a world at war. At war. And it's always been that way. It's, it, it's nothing, nothing new. And, but, and, but the war isn't oftentimes what we think it is. The war is, I think, what the Apostle Paul says. It's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a battle against the, the powers and the principalities of this dark world. And this is why Paul speaks about how important it is for Christians to put on the full armor of God. And, and in that armor, there's... Everything is defensive, but there's one offensive thing that we as believers have as we engage this battle, and it's the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. And I love to just think about this, that God actually wrote a book, (laughs) that God partnered with humanity to write this book, then he became flesh and blood human in Christ to explain the book and to show us how to walk it out. Then he sent the Spirit to us to open the eyes of our heart that we could, when we read the book, could understand the book and be changed by the book. Why am I saying all this? Well, a month ago I was in Israel and we did something on this trip that I've never done in my previous trips, is that this year when we hit the Jewish Sabbath, uh, we literally participated in the Sabbath. For, for 24 hours, when the sun sets, the Sabbath begins. And we did what that world does. That world, on the same Bible reading schedule called the Torah portion, um, the whole, whether you're a Jew in, in, in China or Tokyo or New York or Paris, uh, every Jew is reading through the Bible the same stuff at the same time, and then on Sabbath, you discuss it. We did that. It was amazing. 
And it just showed me that when we stop and step away and collectively gather around the book to digest it, that it changes lives. And, and there was one guy on our trip, and you have to understand, that this trip that I do, I do trips for our church, which are my favorite, but I also do trips for let's just say people that are maybe a little less churched or unchurched and a bit raw, and uh, I get to see how the gospel is the most potent thing in the world. What we have in Christ is just unbelievable. And there was, there was one guy on, on, on this particular trip who had uh, had his whole life destroyed by alcoholism, uh, several marriages and all of that, but three years ago came to Christ. And he said something to me. He said, I said, what keeps you from alcohol? He said, you want my simple answer? He says, every day I read three chapters of the Bible. He goes, it's food to me. And he, he said, the day, he says, the moment I stop reading the book is, is, is when I know I'm going to be vulnerable to go back to my disease. And this book is not for pastors. It's for all of us. Let's take it up. Let's read it. And for this month, I have a reading schedule for you. Uh, let's read the book of Deuteronomy. Let's dive into it. Crossroads, take hold of that. Seize that challenge. Each week, let's read eight to nine chapters. We can do that, okay? That's our reading plan uh, for the month of January. Um, okay. Now, I'll be the first to say the book isn't always easy to read, especially when it instructs us on how to live and, and, and how to walk which is why even in, in Jesus' day, God's people are asking, is, is, is there a commandment, a greatest commandment that explains all these other commands that, that God gives to us? And their sages all pretty much agreed and said, yes, there is one. Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, or Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And I'm sure we all know this as well, but it's called the Shema, because Shema um, is the word, Hebrew word for hear, and it begins with the word hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I don't know if you know this, but every devout Jew, going back to the time of Jesus, up until present day, the first thing they do when they wake up is they declare aloud the Shema. And this becomes then the commitment of, the, of, of their heart throughout the day because as they say this, as they pray this, they believe that the kingdom of God is going to explode in and explode out of their lives as they seek to live this every hour of the day, which is why they begin their day saying this aloud, and they end the day by saying the Shema aloud. This is why the Shema to this day is the central defining characteristic of every devout Jew. It's central to their calling. It's central to their identity. It's, it, it's the essence of 
what a Jew would say, this is what it means for us to belong to, to God and to be in relationship with him. And you say, well, that's Jewish, we're Christian. Well, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 22. And I do have this on PowerPoint. They came to him, they said, Rabbi, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he said, a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And on this, the whole Bible hangs. Paul, you see it in his writings. Places like Galatians 5, Romans 13. The didache, something that doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Uh, didache, uh, it were, well, the subtitle of the didache, the Lord's teachings by the apostles to the Gentiles, something that was written already in the first century. Um, possibly by the disciples of Jesus themselves, this is how the didache begins. There are two ways to live. One of life, one of death. And there's a great difference between the two ways. The way of life is this. First, you shall love the Lord your God who made you. Secondly, thy neighbor as thyself. And whatsoever thou would do, have done to thyself, do not thou to another. The early church made Shema the starting point. It made it the core essence of what it means to be a Christian. It has to be, because Christ said it was this way. The apostles are saying the same thing. And I hear so many people today saying, you know, this Christianity thing, it, it, it really isn't working. And I hear people proposing that, that maybe we just need to repackage it or maybe we need to reinvent it or, or maybe we need to just make it conform better to, to the ways of our world to make it more relevant. I say, no, we don't. We need to recapture it. We need to re rediscover the ancient path and the essence of the ancient path is Shema. So that's what we're going to do this month, is we're going to look at Shema. We're going to unpack Shema. Hopefully, through this, we're going to recapture it for our lives so we can live Shema. So let's start with the context in which the Shema is given. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is the final book of Torah. Torah are the first five books in our Bible, the books of Moses. And what Deuteronomy is, it's a series of sermons or speeches preached by God through Moses to God's people right before Moses is about to die and right before God's people are about to enter the promised land. And just think about the context. God delivered his people from Egypt and then they're in the desert for 40 years, knowing that's not the destination, that they're going to promised land, but they have to wait and wait and wait. Feel the sense of anticipation. Now they are about ready to enter the land, and right before they do, Moses, God through Moses, gives them the words of Deuteronomy. Let me say something about promised land. 
Promised land is more than just a land flowing with milk and honey. Promised land is God's people finally entering their calling. And what is that calling? Well, it was last year's theme verse. You're a chosen people, holy nation. God's special possession. Declaring the praises of God of the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's their calling. That's our calling. God doesn't just call us out of darkness. He doesn't just call us out of our Egypts. He also calls every single one of us into something great. Whatever that call is in your life, that's your promised land. And I think so often we think of promised land as as some otherworldly place that we call heaven, or, or as the hymn writer says in the sweet by and by, uh, that is not the biblical conception of promised land. Promised land is actually this world. It's in the here and now where you and I live out the call of God that he has placed on our life to essentially be what Jeremiah said this morning, to be a, a, a nation of priests who are putting him on display for the world to see, uh, bringing shalom to chaos. So whatever that call is, it's your promised land. And yeah, it will be a land of flowing with milk and honey. Because living in the call of God and living out the call of God is the greatest thing there is. Now, Deuteronomy then is essentially God's people are in the locker room about to play the biggest game of their life, which is entering the land and living out their call. And God is like the coach giving them this last pep talk. This is who you are. This is what I made you to be. And this is what you are to go and do as I put you in that place. And at the heart of this book, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Just think about this. 40 years leading up to this, Israel's been isolated from the world. And now God is going to plunge them, literally right in the center of the world. And the ancient world that they were going to be plunged into was a polytheistic world, which means all kinds of gods. A God for everything under the sun, everything beyond the sun, a God for prosperity, a God for sports, a God for pleasure, a God for home life, a God for work life, a God for, for, for everything. And what they did is they identified these gods with an idol, um, a statue to this god. Sometimes they'd be those big idols that would be in the temples where the god lived, or sometimes they'd be these little clay figurines uh, that they'd carry around in, in, in their back pocket. But this is what a polytheistic world does, is it compartmentalizes all of life. And then for each compartment, there is a god or a demon or a good luck charm that needs to be appeased 
So you get the God's favor in that area. Now, if you think this sounds a little bit backwards, the ancients, I think, understood something that we moderns have forgotten, and that's this, that there is a spiritual power really behind everything. Money isn't just money. Sex isn't just sex. Food isn't just food. Sport isn't just sport. I mean, see, the ancients understood that, that these things that we taste and that we touch and that we look at and that we pursue, that they are supercharged with power. So career, money, possessions, comfort, status, power, food, social media, sex, beauty, boyfriend, girlfriend, pleasure, football games, popularity, homes, cars, all these things can have massive power over us. The ancient would say these essentially can become gods that we worship. See, even though we don't carry around clay figurines or little wood statues, I don't think we're that much different. We all have our idols. And I think like the ancients too, we, we compartmentalize and, and we have different gods for the different areas uh, of life, those different spheres. In many ways, we are practical polytheists. I mean, in the, in, in, in the compartment of, of the marketplace, we still trust that bull. Think about that big bull outside of, outside of Wall Street. It's a God we worship. In the compartment of the state, uh, we still trust in the gods of parties and presidents. In other compartments, we trust the gods of self-help. And in other compartments, we trust the gods of, of, of health and medicine. And here's what shatters all of these compartments. Shema. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. Now, the Lord is one carries this, this sense of only or solely. It's the confession that there is only one God who is over every compartment, every sphere of life that nothing falls outside his lordship. And that's why when you start reading the first five books of the Bible and you, and, and you come to all these laws and you're kind of like, wait, what, what are these things doing here? I mean, they almost seem crazy to us. I mean, one verse will deal with how you're to approach the temple. Another verse will, will deal with what you're supposed to do if your ox falls into a pit. Um, a, a, another verse will deal with how to handle the mildew in the kitchen or, or, or how to treat your menstrual cycle if you're a female. Um, and you're like, what, what is this doing in our Bibles? Well, what, what Torah is teaching is that every sphere of life, it all is significant to God and every aspect of life is to come under his lordship, all of it. That he is to be the Lord when I rise. He is to be the Lord when I lie down. He's, he's the Lord when I go to church on Sundays. He's, he's the Lord of my Monday when I go to work. He's the Lord of my weekend. He's the Lord of my public life. He's the Lord of my private life. He, 
He's the Lord over my home. He's the Lord over my work. He's the Lord of my school. He's the Lord over my pleasure. He's the Lord over my ministry, sports, relationships, time, possessions, talents. He is Lord, Lord of everything. Can you say that today? I think that is a great thing to think about on the first Sunday of a new year. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of every area of my life? Because that is the claim of Shema. The Lord is God. The Lord alone. And see, this is why the first word of Shema is Shema, in Hebrew, Shema is the word hear. This is something we have to hear with our ears. But even more than just hearing it with our ears, Shema also means to obey. And we have this in our English. I, I, I experienced this as a parent all the time when my kids were younger. I would constantly say to them, did you, did you hear me? Or, are you listening to me? What am I really asking? Would you obey me? Shema Israel. Obey Israel. And what is obedience to the one who deserves it, who is Lord over everything? Because obedience is our most appropriate response to the Lord. It's to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our might. That's what I want to look at just for the remainder of this morning is what does it mean to love God with all of our heart? Let's start with this word heart because the ancients like us saw the heart as this physical organ in our chest that sustains all of physical life. They also, like us, saw um, the heart to be the place where, where we feel things, where our emotions are, our desires, our, our, our wants. Uh, they're all birthed there. They're all expressed uh, right here, right? This, this, this is where we emote and feel and, and express those feelings. It's, it, it's here, in fact, the Bible is, is, is the first to come up with, with this picture or metaphor of a broken heart. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Uh, David in Psalm 51 says, God, you do not desire and burn offerings or sacrifices. What, what you desire is a broken and a contrite heart. See, this is where our understanding of heart and the biblical understanding of heart stops because in Hebrew, and this word, by the way, in Hebrew is the word lavav, or the short form of it is simply lev. Lev or lavav is, is, is also your thoughts. It's, it's your mind. It, it, it's your intellect. It, it's, it's where cognition takes place. And I know this is crazy to us, because we place cognition up here in the brain. But the ancient had no conception of the brain. 
They don't even have a word for mind. All your thinking takes place in your heart. That's why in the, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you don't know with your mind, you, you, you know with your heart, with your lavav. In, in Proverbs, uh, this book that speaks of wisdom, it, it consistently says that, that, that wisdom dwells in one's heart. Something to think about. The heart also, according to the Bible, is the place of our will, our intentions. It, 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 it's where we make choices. And what the Bible over and over again is it connects our choices to our desires. How often does it say things like, and Israel went after the desires of her heart. So heart to us is just a part of us, but to the ancient, a heart is all of you. It, it, it's what makes you a you. It's the physical organ that sustains your physicality. It's where you feel emotions. It's, it's the home of your desires, your affections. It, it's, it's the place where you think and you, you reason, where you discern. It's the center of all human existence. This is why the Bible says, guard your hearts, for from it flows all of life. Now feel the magnitude of that verse in light of what the heart is biblically. This isn't just an injunction to, to guard our feelings, but it's also we are to guard our thoughts, our desires, our choices, because these things all collectively can become such a force for such good or evil. Now, Jeremiah even ups the stakes even more in regards to heart because he says the heart is what is most broken in the entire world, the human heart. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, beyond cure. Who can understand it? Heart is so broken. I mean, think about how broken our desires are. Think about how broken our, our emotions are. Think about how broken our, our, our choices are. Think about how broken our, our, our thought life is. And, and, and then as a result of all of this, how broken we are. And then as a result of that, if you want to know why our world is so broken, it's because of the heart. The heart's broken. So when God says, love me with, with all of your heart, God is not just saying, love me with, with, with a part of you um, or, or even your feelings, your emotions and desires, but God is saying, I also want you to love me with your thoughts. I want you to love me with your choices. I want you to love me with everything that makes you, you. Every part of you, God says, love me. Do we? It's another great question to ask on this first Sunday of the new year. Do we love God with every, 
with all that we are. And see, sometimes I know in my life, I I can love God with my feelings. Oh, I can feel God sometimes. I can experience God. But then simultaneously, the choices I'm making are so selfish. And it's like, oh, but I'm loving God with my feelings, but I'm not loving God with my choices. Or sometimes I can love God with my choices or or so think that I am and and not love him with, with my thoughts or my intellect. And then a lot of people will say this, and I myself have said it at times too, that the heart is just what it is. Like you can't help what it is that you love. The heart is just gonna be what it is. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, our our loves need to be shaped. That we can't be passive in this. We need to be proactive. That's why the Bible is constantly saying to us, set your hearts on this and not that, and seek with all your heart this but not that. Pursue and go after. And God's at the center of what the Bible tells us to set our heart on and what we're to seek and go after. Even when it says David is a man after my own heart, that doesn't mean that David had a heart like God. It means David's heart was going after God's heart. Because here's what happens. What we actually set our heart on will actually fuel our love. It will fuel our desires. It will fuel our thoughts, our affections, what we seek, what we pursue, what we live for. It's going to affect everything. Our choices. See, this is why the Bible, too, both New Testament and Old Testament, speak about idolatry all the time as the main problem. Because idolatry in the Bible is not just this peripheral thing. It, 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 it's the core problem. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is, is, is anything that we make that becomes a substitute for God. It's, it's, it's something other than God that we set our heart on to get our sense of worth. It, it's anything other than God that we depend on for our long-term happiness, satisfaction, security. It's anything that we love and pursue more than God or at the expense of God. And ask yourself, what's the Holy Spirit right now putting on your heart? What's he putting his finger on? And see, this is why idolatry is such a big deal, because there are such consequences. The Bible tells us that we actually become what we love. We we become what we worship. We we literally become its slave. So whoever seeks pleasure, they're going to be controlled by pleasure. Whoever seeks money, they're going to be controlled by money. Whoever seeks sex will be controlled by sex. Whoever seeks power will be controlled by power. Whoever seeks beauty, they're going to be controlled by it. We're not in control as much as we would like to think. And see, this is why the Bible talks about, I mean, this is quite a picture if you you ask me, circumcision of the heart. 
That's quite a picture. What the Bible is talking about there is all this stuff that's in our hearts that's sick, that's wrong, needs to be cut out. What in your heart right now needs to be cut out? Because this isn't a game. We're talking about the heart and what the heart is to the human body. Think about how important it is for us to have a healthy heart. This is life and death stuff. What are you feeding your heart? What are you feeding your mind? What are you feeding your desires, your feelings? We love to nurture our feelings, our hurt. We love to feed our bitterness. We love to nurse our anger, our unforgiveness. Or how about this thought from Jesus? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where we place our treasure, where we place our money, where we place our time, where we place our talents, our heart's just going to follow. How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? I'd like to end with this. The first time love is used in the Bible is a significant it's, it's true about all the, we had a, um, we had a rabbi on our last trip uh, because this rabbi is actually going to seminary. He's not a Christian, but he's so intrigued with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaChodesh, and, and he, he was on, on our Israel trip, and um, <laughs> now I can't even remember why I brought him up. Oh, yeah, yeah, because... <laughs> He said first usage of the word in the Bible is, is hugely significant. And I always knew that, but it's always fun to hear that from, from someone like, like him. And the first time love is used in our Bible, does anybody know? It's in Genesis 22. When God says to Abraham, Abraham, would you take the son whom you love? and offer him as a sacrifice. In other words, what God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, do you love me even more than your own son? Abraham's response, Hanani. <laughs> Hanani is a word all over our Bible that literally means I am in total allegiance to you I am completely bound to you. Whatever you ask, I will do, which is why the next verse after, next clause after Hanani is early the next morning. Abraham got up with his son Isaac and set out for the mountain that God asked him to go. My question every time I read this story, how could Abraham do this? What is it that actually got Abraham up the mountain, the place where God had asked him to sacrifice his son? And when I, I, I see unbelievable faith, 
I mean, there's the part in the narrative where the whole narrative slows down. And it says, and Abraham and Isaac walk together. And Abraham says to Isaac, son, and Isaac says back to his dad, Hanani, dad. And Isaac says to his father, dad? And dad says back to Isaac, Hanani. It's like they're both in total solidarity, totally bound together. And the question that Isaac asks is, dad, we have everything for the sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And to put myself in that father's shoes in that moment, I mean, Abraham's whole life has gone dark. He can't see. But he says to his son, Isaac, he says, God will see to it. I can't see right now, but God will see to it, son. Faith. Hope. He had hope. I mean, literally, it's, it's, it's in the text where, where, where in, in Hebrews describing this, Abraham hoped in the resurrection, and, and it's in the narrative itself because Abraham gets to that last leg of the journey, and he says, servants, you stay back. It's now Isaac and me, and he says, we're going up that mountain, and we are coming back. It's like he knows, even if God makes him go through with this, there will be a resurrection. He has amazing hope. But what most got Abraham up that mountain is love. He loved God too much. Abraham could not not do what God asked. Even when it made no sense to him, he kept walking. And he was willing to give up what he loved most because Abraham loved God even more. You know what God says to him when this ordeal is over? Now I know, Abraham, that you love me because you did not withhold your only son. That's what it means to love God with all our heart. And you know why we can? Because God would never ask us to do anything that he doesn't do himself. The reason why God says don't lie is because God could never lie. The reason why God says don't kill someone is because God could never kill someone. The reason why God says, love me with all of your heart is because God loves us with all of his heart. As Romans 8 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all, he loves us with all his heart. 
And so many times in life, like Abraham at the beginning of this, it, it, it looks like this is all about Abraham and, and, and how much Abraham loves God. But by the time you get to the end of this whole ordeal, you realize this isn't so much about Abraham and his love for God. It's about God and his love for Abraham. Do you realize how good God is? Do you realize how much he loves you? Do you realize how he is orchestrating everything in heaven and on earth for your good right now? This is why Jesus said, only, only the Father is good. And he is a good, good Father. And we are made to know this Father we are made to live in the arms of this Father. We are made to love this Father with everything that we have, which means that all of our idols, what are really our functional Lord and Saviors, they'll never save us. They're never gonna ultimately satisfy us. They're never gonna deliver on what they promise. They'll never love us back. They'll never die for us. And in the end, we only lose them. So why not give them up? And let go of them. And give your heart, all of it, to a God who just loves you. And you know how you experience the love of this Father? Give up, lay down, and turn and return to him. God, this morning, as we start this new year, May we all take inventory of our hearts. And God, would you cause our hearts to repent, to turn, to seek you with everything we have. And God, if you are putting your finger on specific things in our life right now, God, God, let us not hang on to those things. God, let us let them go and get to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.